Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-469 of the Run Run Live podcast. Today's show almost didn't happen, and I'm pretty busy right now, and I didn't have an interview, so I was just going to skip it. I was just going to let it slide, you know? But then I get an email from Russ, so I grabbed him for a conversation, and Russ is a man full of wisdom, even if he may not know it. And when I listened to him talking about the things that he gets from the podcast, I, I don't think that's true. I don't think I'm telling him anything he doesn't know already. I think I'm just helping him uncover what he already knows. So I'm the catalyst to free his innate wisdom and maybe contextualize it for him by telling a story. But that catalyst, that being that catalyst has some value, right? So I'll give you my updates for the week. I actually didn't do much this week uh, in terms of working out. I had a business trip for the first time in almost two years. We'll talk about that a little bit. So I let my PT slack so I could focus on that. But, you know, I'm feeling fat. I don't like it. So I got to get back into it and start doing the stuff again. In section one, I step up to the rostrum and preach a sermon. Not a salmon, a sermon on how to incorporate running into the span of your lifetime. And in section two, I'm going to talk about King Tut. Why? Because I can. <laughs> and I want to. We're deep into the early winter here in New England. It's cold, but it's not that cold yet. But it drives the mice into the house. They're looking for heat and warmth. You know, you can't blame them for that. But there's always that one mouse that ruins it for everybody else, ruins for all the rest of the mice. That one mouse that has to climb up on my counter and take a bite out of an apple and poop. That mouse, that mouse goes too far and ruins it for all the other mice. By the time you see that bite of the apple, you have more than one mouse. You've probably got 10 or more living with you. And by the way, what do you call a group of mice? Well, it is commonly referred to as a nest of mice, but more whimsically, you can refer to them as a mischief of mice. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? A mischief of mice. So by the time you see that bite out of the apple, 
you have yourself a mischief of mice. And there may be some sort of moral to that story. I don't know. You can make up your own. But I have the unfortunate necessity of clearing my house of mice every year in November when they get into mischief. I did travel. Like I said, I traveled this week. I flew to Dallas for a meeting with executives, one of my customers. And earlier in the week, before I got on the airplane, I read a post, a timely post by Peter Shankman, who, by the way, we did have on the podcast way, way, way back when. And he wrote about why travel is important to him or why he likes traveling, which resonated with me. And Peter is a very kinetic person. And he said that travel just cures everything. When you're bored, you're depressed, you're anxious, you're confused with life, climbing on an airplane and going somewhere, it just cures all that. It's the movement. It's the feel of the going that lights you up. And I feel the same way. I think although the insides of our heads are quite complex and rich, it is the influence and addition of outside experiential data that feeds the fire. And without that, your life becomes a bit stale and cold. So I miss my travel. And just walking through a major airport and observing the people, the travelers, and imagining their stories, it just makes my life richer. And I know we live in interesting times, but we always have, and it's okay to get out of your house, go see something, get that experience, on with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. So here we go. It's called The Keys to Sustaining a Lifetime of Running. And this is for the beginner. And I talked to our friend Russ this week, and I asked him the question, why should I keep doing a podcast on running when everything has been said and every question has been answered? And he rightly replied that there are many new runners in our fold since COVID started. Probably more psychopaths and zombies too, but that's another story for another day. If we agree with the premise that we have a number of new runners with us, and then we can answer the easy beginner questions for them, like, what kind of shoes? How fast should I run? Should I run every day? How far? Why does my foot hurt? And by the way, the answers to those are, one, definitely not flip-flops, although the right pair of Crocs is pretty comfy, two, as fast as you want, three, if you want to, four, as far as you want, and five, because you're an idiot. But that being said, let's assume you're going to figure all that stuff out, and we'll move on to the wisdom question, which, frankly, I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer, but that never stopped me before. So the big question is, how do you make running endurance sports, the pure joy of sweat and movement, the sweet, clean joy of suffering, not episodic, but part of the arc of your lifetime. And that, my friends, was a holy, gluttonous 77-word sentence. That mad Russian Nabokov would be proud. Now that we have our word-clotted, muse-besotted preamble piled up at the gate, 
How do we create a lifetime of running? Well, the first thing, the number one thing, is consistency. And since we're already referencing Vladimir Nabokov, he's a Russian writer and butterfly aficionado, I'll stay in that groove. I remember reading some advice on writing he gave once, and it was simply to write. He scolded Hemingway and his contemporaries for picnicking and drinking wine instead of getting to the work of writing. And another writer you may have heard of, Stephen King, when asked what his secret to success was, he answered, butt glue, meaning you keep your butt in the chair until the work is done. And it's the same with our sport. If you want to do it for a lifetime, commit. Not so much to the intensity, not so much to the... uh, achievements, not so much to the grand, sweet suffering. Commit to consistency. What's the secret of running? To run. Focus on building the habit of running. Make it like brushing your teeth. Showing up is the win. The next thing you want to do for this question of a lifetime of running, is to consider your frame of reference, your context. Take the long view. Adapt your focus up from today's workout to weeks, to months, to years and decades. Consider the long arc of your life. And when you do consider this, consider your why. Why do you want to have the companionship of running over the long arc of your brief existence? And I'll give you a suggestion because it's going to make your life better. But that's for you to figure out. And but Chris, you may say, if we reduce our running adventure to just showing up every day for years on end, doesn't that suck the joy out of the journey like my eighth grade gym instructor? No, no. And again, I say no. That's just a framework to keep you going through those hard times. And there will be hard times. When you construct this long arc view of your, let's call it a career, you have seasons within the arc. And within these seasons, you have goals and adventures. Adventures so grand, they change you. There's that first marathon campaign, that first mountain climbed, that first trail race in the mud. It's not monotonous drudgery across the decades. You find your BHAGs, big hairy ass goals, head nod to Tom Peters. You have seasons and campaigns and goals. As long as these align with your overall mission, your why, you're all set for the roller coaster of joy and heartbreak that your life of running will bring you. And these seasons and goals don't have to be distance or time or even running. They can be charity or art. Give yourself permission to search and to play. There's no destination to this journey. The journey is the point. Set yourself up to win. And adapt your mission to include that continuous learning with the very real chance of failure. Because when you focus on the journey, there is no failure. There is only experience and learning. There are no wrong choices, only a series of great opportunities. 
and when you fall down and scrape your knee, literally or metaphorically, smile. Bounce back up and smile. You just learned a very valuable lesson about gravity and the abrasive nature of the American blackberry, Rubus occidentalis. Let yourself fall. Let yourself fail. And when it is appropriate, when you are tired and lost and beaten, give yourself the downtime and the vacations from the grind. Know when enough is enough. Know what triggers you and what your triggers are for it's time to change pace. It's time to adjust. And there will be long periods of aimless, pointless runs when you don't think you're achieving anything. But as our friend Russ told me this week, with his great wisdom, appreciate the maintenance. Think of this running act as an anchor, not as a constraint. An anchor creates context and space for life, whereas a constraint creates scarcity. Never think of your running life in terms of scarcity. Think in terms of abundance. It's always and, not or. You get to do this. Even when you limp around the neighborhood dragging your broken and worthless form like a zombie of death, remember that. You get to do this. You have been given a gift. You are blessed. And finally, most importantly, find your tribe. Find those fellow souls with which you can share this journey. The faces and actors will change as you run through your journey, but the presence of your tribe will bring you through time and again in shared joy and common spirit. And now for today's featured interview. So, Russ, give us the, the 200 words. Who you are, what you do. You know the drill. Uh, yeah, long time, you know, long time listener, first time caller. Is, it, is it the first time we've talked, Russ? It's not the first time we've talked. It's the first time I've been on the podcast. Uh, because usually I corral everyone to be on the podcast. It's <laughs> right. How do you avoid that it's for so long? You made the mistake of reaching out to me yesterday. So now here you are. We actually <laughs> met back in 2013 at the Cinco Loco. I'm Russ Porter. I'm, I'm uh, your average runner turned 50 years old. So I'm slowing down a little bit. And we're talking because uh, I got the sense a couple of, of podcasts ago that you were you were hinting that you might be hanging it up time, sometime soon. I think you said something about the, the podcast running the course. So I wrote to you and said, please don't. Because um, <laughs> I know I've been listening for uh, upwards of 10 years and I get a lot out of the podcast and, and out of the community that's been formed around all these running podcasts. So, uh, so I just wanted you to keep going and, and keep up the parallel track with the, uh, after the apocalypse uh, yeah. of which I'm a big yeah. fan as well. Apocalypse stories, 10 years is a long time, right? We go back to 2013, 2008, you know, way back when uh, a lot of water under the bridge. And it's interesting to me that we've kind of seen in 10 years, you don't see a lot of change, but in 20 years, you see a lot of change in people. Right. You see, a, you see a big arc there. Um, and yeah, I was thinking about the podcast because especially if I'm not running, you know, what's what's the use of me putting out a running podcast if I'm not running? But the good news is I, I ran this week a little bit. I ran a turkey trot and the knee came away feeling OK. 
So I think I might be, uh, hopefully it's not another false peak, but I might be coming back. Excellent. So question to you, what's the sense of doing a running podcast if, if you've, you've said everything? See, I, I can understand your perspective there, but you know, a couple of things came to mind when, when you said you said that early on. Is uh, Number one is there's always new people. There's always people who are finding the podcast, who are f- discovering running, who are really enthusiastic, but maybe not, they don't have that level of, of knowledge. They don't necessarily have the back catalog, the 10 years of history that you and I have in running far more than 10 years. It's a constant newness, uh, a new stream of people, a new group who, who, who wants to know some of the knowledge that, that, and the wisdom that you've imparted over the years. Yeah, you can point them to the back catalog and say, read, you know, go see 350 episodes. But to the person that, that just started running this year because of the pandemic, everything they're hearing is fresh and new and, and exciting and invigorating. So that's one reason to do it. The other, the other reason I was thinking of is, okay, you're injured. You're not done. Uh, we've all gone through injuries at some point in our running careers and, and hearing how you address that and how you deal with that. Uh, it helps others, you know, get in the right mental state to continue that themselves. We, we've seen you go through plantar fasciitis. We've seen lots of our fellow runners go through, you know, this issue or that issue. Uh, I think about Kevin Gwynn and his hip replacement and what he's done for his community in terms of, of changing the way that people think about injury and recovery. So in this short period of time that you're not running, there's, there's that to offer. The other thing that tried to do over the years, I don't know if I've tried to do it or it just happens naturally, is I try to to talk about other things, right? Running is the sort of the anchor, but it's um it's really about life and lifestyle. And maybe I have a small world, but my lifestyle revolves around my career or my work and, and my family, my life, right? So it's it's how do you how do you manage all that stuff? Because if you just talk about the mechanics of running, it done with that catalog pretty quickly. No, and, and Chris, I think that's one of the things that I've loved about your podcast above all the others is, is you know, you, you break it into sections. And, and over the years, I've seen you go through seasons. You know, we had a, we had a philosophy season. We had a, uh, a history season. We're in your, your science fiction and apocalypse season now. <laughs> and throughout it, and, and really some of the stuff that's really been the, the, the most um, clarifying to me was when you did bring business topics or, or life coaching topics into the podcast. I mentioned to you my note, you know, I've been listening and, and, and the number of times I've been out running, listening to, to your, your material. And I, just, you hit on that one thought, that one pearl of wisdom that made me really almost stop my running and say, that is genius. That's the, that's the message I needed to hear. I've had so many of those over over the years uh, that came out through through not the discussions of running, but through the discussions of life, and it's it's prompted me to make some changes myself. So, what's an example? Well, you know, one of the things you talked about was change, and, and a couple of things you you've hit on a couple of themes that really always resonated with me. One of those was you you said something, and it was a while ago, about people change. When the pain, the perceived pain of, ch- of the change is less than the perceived pain of staying the way it is. Yeah. And, and that really resonated t- with me. Uh, and, and I dwelled on it for a while and I thought about my job and I thought about what I was doing with my job and where it was going. And, 
I, I, I made the decision at that point or shortly after I heard that, that there were, there might be better opportunities out, out there for me. And so I, I, I decided I was going to go out and check them out and go pursue them and see, you know, is the pain of separating from one company and joining another, is that really going to be worse than staying where I am? Um, and ultimately, it led me to actually take a new job uh, a few months ago. Uh, I'd been at one company, a, a large blue technology company, for about 28 years. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I made a leap. I joined a small professional services firm, went over as the CFO of, of that company. And I'm only a few months in, but I am just thrilled I made the change for the sake of change. I'm not sure I would have gone down that path if it hadn't been for some of these, some of the, the, the ruminations you had in as a part of the podcast. Interesting. Now I've heard similar stories from other folks um, over the years. And, and a lot of times it's not me giving advice per se. It's me thinking about a topic, right? Or I'm trying to, I'm trying to think through it in, uh, in my own head. And I do that by, by writing. And the other thing I've been trying to do recently, I don't know what recently means, but is to end the sections with something thought-provoking or positive. Because we get, we get enough negative stuff and we get enough challenges. But if I can say to you, this week your assignment is to be kind right? <laughs> or ask somebody how they're doing, maybe that's, that's, that's a ripple in the universe, right? Maybe yeah. that, that'll bring yeah. them back to us. And that's the kind of stuff, that's the kind of stuff that really helps build up the running community. Um, which is one of the reasons why I, I, I do listen to all these podcasts and, and, and I do focus on what's going on in the running community is because it is, you talked about ultra running and how ultra runners aren't competitive. They're collaborative. They're, mm-hmm. they're there to cheer each other on, to, to help out, to encourage each other when, when the going gets tough. And, and that's what I see the running community as being a lot about with new runners who are coming on and, and finding out what this endurance sports are all about. I think they get a lot out of it, knowing that there are all these people who have who have done this before, and who are there to share their wisdom and share and share their knowledge. I think I think it's a really powerful thing that you know gets brought to new runners and helps them along uh, when the going gets tough. And I think everyone's journey is their own. Absolutely, a lot of people look for a, a cookbook, a how-to, a checklist that says, "Here's what you need to do when you become a runner," right? And they're looking. Well, you see that new runners a lot by the questions they ask, right? Like, you know, there's a checklist of some sort, but everybody's journey is different. It is. And that's part of the wisdom. I mean, people do look for checklists. Otherwise, your, your how to qualify for Boston book wouldn't be doing so well. Um, yeah, everyone asks the question, what's the right shoe? As if there's one magic shoe that we all wear, right. uh, that, that all the yeah. quote unquote real runners wear or you know, what's the right pace to run? And there's yeah. no right pace for everybody. It's, it's, it's yeah. up to you. It's up to your conditions and what you can do. Yeah. And the sad thing, as I mentioned earlier, is that changes over time. You know, I know I've lost a good minute and a half per mile off of where I was at my peak. Uh, that's where sure. I am in my life right now. Can I fight like hell to get that back? Sure. And, and there are a lot of people my age who are doing that, but there are a lot who are saying, okay, I'm happy with where I am. It's, it's fun. It's enjoyable. Uh, I don't need to set a PR uh, every time I go out and race. I, I look at some of these questions and, and the answer is always is it depends, you know, 
And it just amazes me because there's a lot of people entering the sport at a fairly mature age now, right? I see, I I don't know if you see it, but I see it where folks are sort of waking up when they're 45 or 50 and saying, okay, I'm going to start running. And it's, and they're asking all the same questions that they would if they were starting when they were 18, right? It's all the same questions. What kind of shoes? How far should I go? How fast should I go? How often should I go? And the answer is always, you know, it depends. You want to get out of it. What's your goals? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and making sure that those goals are, are, uh, you know, achievable and realistic is, is a key thing. I mean, uh, a lot of runners I talk to, you know, their, their, their vision is that they're going to, you know, qualify for Boston or, or, you know, or, or set a PR every time they're going out, which when you're early on in your running career, yeah, that's possible when you put more miles on your legs, sometimes that's not so achievable. You know, the, the getting out and, and being faster every time. But as you say, it, it's every runner's different. I mean, I started running when I was, when I was 30. Uh, I see these runners who are phenomenal, who start running when they're like 65. Yeah. And, and they're yeah, setting yeah. PRs in their, in their seventies and eighties. That, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think the big thing for me, when I first started the podcast was trying to if, if I thought I had any secrets, it was the power of structured training. It was, you know, you can go out and run every day and that'll get you to a point. But if you want to get to the next point to what you're capable of, you have to figure out uh, structured training. What is a three to four month training plan? What is speed work? What is all this stuff that you have to conquer to, um, to get there? And I thought that was really sort of the secret sauce if there was any. But the other thing I, I really tried to do early on was not to talk about paces, right? Never talk about finish times or right. paces. That wasn't the point. <laughs> right. Right. And, and as you say, that's very individual. Whereas the, the structure of a training cycle, yeah, and you've said this many times over the years, the structure of a training cycle is, is pretty consistent. Uh, but how fast you run it, how often you do, how often you run it, that's where you know, personal circumstances come in, come in more handy. You know, the podcast is, I, one of the things I love about it is, is it's been full of information, but it's also chock full of wisdom, the lore and the, and the stories. Cause I think one of the ways that we, that we really effectively communicate culture is through storytelling. You can convey information factually and in tables and, and lists, but wisdom wisdom really gets best communicated through stories, uh, and yep. which is, again, one of the things I love about the I love about a lot of the podcasts out there today, especially experiential wisdom, right? Because if you yep. think it's it's here's the information and here's the inf- then here's the information in essentially a lab setting or information applied, right? That's the experiential part of it, and you have to be able to tell a story in a way that people can digest it, right? Make it entertaining, make it compelling, make it have a beginning, a middle, and an end. So, yeah, that's something that I've always focused on is trying to make that entertaining so that information and if there is any wisdom can get across, can cross that bridge. When you're building, when you're, when you're making stories, essentially what you're doing is you're building bridges, right? And you're building the bridge from where they are to where you want them to get to. And and you have to think about how they're gonna how they're gonna make that arc. I remember you saying that you did a lot of your writing when you were traveling. Uh, yeah. and we were, we were just mentioning that that now that traveling's opening up, is that gonna is that gonna open up the floodgates of of Chris Russell writing? 
So that's that's interesting because I think um, I'll have some time this week, some airplane time this week to write. So we'll see because that's when I would write is on the airplanes because um, you're stuck in a seat for three hours. You, know, you might as well slap the headphones in and get some get some writing done. And I do have a couple of topics that I want to talk about. So what's a good running topic we haven't talked about for a while? Personally, of course, leaning on the uh, how do you deal with uh, health issues uh, as yeah. your running continues? Because there's lots of people out there dealing with health, health issues. Uh, the other thing is sustainability uh, in, in terms of being able to keep it up for a lifetime yeah. um, and not just a, not just a season or, or a couple of years. We've got a lot of new runners, like I said, out, you know, that came out because of the pandemic who are now realizing that for some people, this is a lifestyle. It's not just a, let me prepare for this race or, or, or that run, but it's something that they can do. Uh, they'll, they'll be physically able to do for, you know, 20, 30 years. So hearing a little bit more about that might be of, in, of interest. No, and I've been working with people at work around that because they're not going to, their goal is not to become runners or a race or anything like that. Their goal is to get fit, right? To, to develop that fitness habit. And so that's, um, and that's what it comes down to is habit building, right? It doesn't matter what you do. As long as you're consistent, you'll see results. Right. And the best way to be consistent is to find something you love doing. I just bought, bought a book that said, I hate running and you can too. But I saw that. So for a lot of people, the running is not their thing, but, but there's some kind of exercise or, or activity that's going to get people's blood going, uh, literally, you know, get their circulation up, get their heart rate pumping that they really love to do. And going on that search is something that everybody can do. Go try a whole bunch of things. You don't need to be a teenager to, to try new things. And that's one thing that I, I think leads people to feeling that they're old is because they stopped experimenting. Yeah. Uh, you know, we are all experiments of one uh, and that experiment doesn't end until it's, until it really ends. So you can always I, find something I, new. I think that's true. And part of it comes down to giving yourself permission to go on that search, to go on that journey without preconditions, right? Because a lot of times we'll get caught up in results you know, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to be good at it. That, you know, the second part of that doesn't have to be true, right? Or I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it every day for the rest of my life. Well, maybe that's not true, but you give yourself permission to search, right? To, to, to play at things as opposed to take them on as a, as a job. Right. Because right? when you start something new, even if it's fun, you may not be very good at it. You know, the people who are starting new things, they stink at it. But if it's fun, they'll keep at it and they'll get better. One of my favorite words these days is yet. Uh, I, yeah. can't speak, uh, I can't speak Spanish yet. Uh, yeah. I haven't won a political office yet. Um, it's, that, it's that yet that says, hey, there's more to it. There's more I can do. There's more adventures to be had out there. Oh, I was going to give you an example of consistency, right? So the last few weeks, I've been working with this uh, physical therapy routine. And it's a lot of stuff that I just don't want to do. You know, it's clamshells and step-ups and bird dogs and just physical therapy, right? And But just these last couple of days, I'm, it's making a difference, right? Like I can feel it made a difference in my balance and my strength. And that goes back to the knee, right? So just to the point of you got to stick, stick with something long enough to see if it's actually 
you know, you have to be consistent long enough to see what the results are. So, and that's, that's the other thing. We take it all the way back to structured training. Most people will do a couple of things and they don't see any results. So they go do something else. And the, if you have a training plan or, or some advice or a coach, you can have the patience to stick with something long enough to get the results you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. It's that, it's that pers- persistence, that stick to itiveness. Uh, and, and as you say, get, having a coach, you know, your coach is going to know maybe better than you when you should expect to see results and when the lack of any results is, is, you know, starting to be an issue. But get you to focus on the process. And not the exactly. Exactly. And, uh, and, and to a certain extent, it, it's one last thing for you to worry about when you do have a coach. Uh, let them, you know, let your coach structure your training, let your coach give you the feedback that you need. So you can just go out and, and do what, do what they need you to do. I think what I've found is that specific coaches, they have their, they're like us, right? They have their way and that's their way, right? You're not going to change their way and they're not going to adapt that, you know, much. They're not going to adapt it completely for you. They'll adapt within that way. So you have to think about that when you're looking for coaches, right? Is there is their methodology, is their way appropriate for you? Because it may not be for what you're trying to do. No, agreed. And, you know, it, it was fascinating. Uh, I saw the same thing in pacers. A couple of years ago, I ran a marathon and, and they actually had interviews with all the pacers. So the pacers could explain how they ran the race. Are they negative splits? Are they positive splits? Are they walking the uphills? Are they? And it was amazing to see the variation there. And coaching is the same way. Now, I listened to the MTA podcast and they they talk about their coaches and, and how they all have different styles and different emphasis on, you know, the long run versus the cross training, you know, run, walk coaches, et cetera. So, yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of it is, you know, you try it out for a month, see if the coach matches your style and and if not move on. Yeah. And you have to trust them. I, I really think it's also, it's gotta be fun. It, it's gotta be something you're enjoying doing. If you're not enjoying working with a coach, I don't know if I'd call it fun, right? So we're not looking for, we're looking for fulfillment, right? We're looking for something better, something bigger, right? So, I mean, I think, it, it, I don't know what the word is. It's not fun. And maybe it's goodness. Maybe it's worthiness. I don't know. It's, it's something, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. I mean, fun is not usually the F word I associate with running sometimes, but yeah. uh, it, it is some, some level of enjoyment. It's, it's the old adage, you know, I, I, I'm not thrilled with running, but I, I'm thrilled with having run. Uh, yeah. I'm always glad at the end of a run that I have run, even though I don't always look forward to it. Uh, if you can get that out of your coaching sessions and out of your, out of your relationship with a coach, that's the, that's the best thing. All right. Well, if anybody needs any help, they can call us. We'll tell them. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you, man. Maybe you. Let me, let me ask you one of my stock questions here. So what are the top three things you've learned in the last 10 years as you went through this journey? You know, you, you, you touched on the fact that it's individual. Um, you know, I run with a running group here in my town and I am not the slowest, but I am far from the fastest, but it's an individual sport. Everybody's different, but there are, there's a community around you. Uh, like I said, I'm not the fastest or the slowest, but I've always got people around me that I can sit and chat with and, you know, make the, make the time pass very enjoyably. I'm also a back of the packer. You know, you may be a mid packer. I'm a back of the packer uh, where there's a lot of fun and a lot of, lot of camaraderie. 
Uh, and again, that camaraderie, that community, e- even in the confines of a, of a race is, is really something to be appreciated uh, within the running yeah. community that, yeah, and, um, agree. you know, the persistence, the, the, the sticking to it, you see progress, you see, you see improvement, or at least you see maintenance uh, and maintenance is not sexy. Maintenance is not writing home and saying, you've got a PR every day, but it does mean you're keeping yourself in shape. You're avoiding the, the worst of aging. I'm, I'm older than I've ever been is, is a, a line I love now, but I'm, I've been keeping up my running, keeping up cross training, doing triathletes, the triathlons. And it's, it's kept me, I think from uh, going to bad places in my health. I say that being a guy who, you know, I just got a bad health report. I'm, uh, we talked earlier about the fact that I'm yeah. off to a, to a stress test in 10 minutes to go evaluate something. But, uh, you know, I think about how much worse I could be if I wasn't for the endurance sports lifestyle I've been living for the last 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'd, I'd, I'd echo that. I think it's community is the big, biggest thing that I've taken away from this in the last you know, dozen years or so. And, and that's, that's from my local guys I run with who I love dearly and uh, to the, all the online folks that we meet and have met and had the privilege to interact with. So I'm with you hundred percent. All right. Maybe we'll keep doing the podcast for one more week. Oh, good. <laughs> all right, man. I'm going to let you go. Uh, I am on, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and all that. I'm, I'm love to run 42 K, which I'm always amazed at how few people get that reference, but you know, that, that's me. So I'm just, I'm just thrilled to be a part of the community, thrilled to be getting all the content that you and Kevin and all the other podcasters are producing and uh, just look forward to, to running for the next 30 years. What's your next race? I have nothing formal on the calendar, but I do have a new year's resolution run I've done for the last, I think, six years. So new year's day, we all get together, running, running seven mile together. I got a niece getting married down the Cape on new year's Eve. So I'm thinking I'm going to rally all those people and make them jump in the ocean with me. There, oh, 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 yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, have, but the, you should have them stay up all night and then jump in the ocean. Of course, of course. Yeah, antifreeze. All right, talk to you later. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, Chris. Take care. See ya. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Tut Ankh Amun. Tutankhamun, as we say. Tut Ankh Amun. The living image of Amun. And I'm not sure you have picked up on this or not, but one of my many interests is history, generally, and archaeology especially. I love the Romans, the Greeks, the Egyptians. And one of the podcasts I listen to is the History of Egypt podcast by Dominic Perry. He just finished a long series of shows about the tomb of King Tutankhamun. The most famous Egyptian in our times is King Tut, which is interesting because he certainly wasn't a standout in his time. He was a minor king across a long list of Egyptian kings and rulers. You probably think you know everything about Tut's story, but his story continues to evolve. And what we thought we knew 20 years ago, we think differently about today. We're continuously learning. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why he is so famous, but first let's put this king, King Tut, into context. So Tut was born 
1341 BC, and he died around the age of 18 or 19 in 1323 BC. That is a staggering 3,344 years ago. The fact that we know anything about someone who lived over three millennia ago is mind-boggling. The fact that we know so much about Tut is just a miracle. Tut was the last ruler of the 18th dynasty of the New Kingdom. Historians break the history of Egypt generally into the Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, the New Kingdom. I'm oversimplifying, but these kingdoms were the periods where those Egyptian kings ruled the Upper and Lower Egypt. The Old Kingdom was when the pyramids were built, and this was a staggering 5,000 years ago. The New Kingdom is sort of recent history in the grand scheme of things. This is uh, included the Ramses, right, who ruled, and you start to get into biblical times. And then it all finally transitions into the Greco-Roman period, where you end up with the Ptolemies and Cleopatra. So we know so much about Tut due to a series of circumstances, many of them accidental. Egyptian kings did leave behind evidence of their times. They built temples. They built tombs. The great pyramids from the Old Kingdom, the great capital cities and temple complexes of Luxor and Karnak and Memphis, they're full of monumental building that tells us the story of these kings and their gods. And luckily for us, they carved their stories, or at least the official versions of their stories, in stone. In many cases, we also have the bodies of these kings and queens of Egypt, which is amazing. Because of their excellent embalming skills, many of their mummies still exist. And we know a lot about their funerary practices and their beliefs from the murals and the carvings in their tombs. But until Tut, we never had an intact royal burial. So who was Tut? Well, like I said above, Tut was the last of his dynasty, the 18th dynasty. He came to the throne after Akhenaten, often referred to as his father, but we don't know that for sure. There may have been another king in between, or that may have been Akhenaten's wife Nefertiti acting as a king. But like I said, it was 3,500 years ago, and the fact that we know anything is a miracle. There are still a lot of questions around lineage in Egyptian kings and queens. DNA testing helps, but the embalming process and the degradation of the mummies makes this hard. And you add to that that there was significant intermarriage of close relatives, and the DNA evidence becomes a bit jumbled. But Tut was eight or nine years old when he became king. He ruled until his death, 18 or 19 years old, and he left no successors. It seems like he had two daughters that both died in childbirth, and we know this because we have their mummies. Tut is also made a bit more famous by his famous predecessor, maybe father, Akhenaten, who decided that there was only one god, the sun disk, Aten. So you may have heard him referred to as the heretic king, Akhenaten. He built a new capital city in the desert, Armana, and shut down the worship of the other old gods. And in fact, Tukhenamun was originally named Tutankhaten, but he changed his name shortly after coming to the throne as part of this effort to re-embrace the old gods, especially Amun. 
and with this re-embracing, Tut began rebuilding the temples of the old gods that had been neglected or erased by Akhenaten. Tut moved the capital back from the new city of Armana, or Akhetaten, back to Thebes. How do we know relatively precise dates from thousands and thousands of years ago? Well, the ancient Egyptians were pretty good at dating things. They had this calendar year that was based on the king. So, for instance, if you find a seal from a bottle of wine that says year four, it means from the fourth year of that king's reign. Uh, But, of course, the biggest reason we know about Tut is what we found in his tomb. And most people think that we found Tut's tomb intact. That's partly true. We found his burial chamber relatively intact with the body of Tut undisturbed from where it was laid after the funerary procession 3,000 plus years ago. What most people don't realize is two things. First, Tut's tomb was broken into at least twice, in fact. And second, how much stuff they still found, even though it was looted twice in antiquity. You know, those two things. How much stuff there was in there. The tomb was discovered by Howard Carter in 1922 in the Valley of the Kings. And luckily for us, Howard Carter was a serious archaeologist for his time and documented everything to the best of his abilities. There were over 5,000 items found in the tomb. And many of these are still to this day being analyzed. The tomb itself was small and a rush job. Apparently, no one expected the king to die at age 18 or 19. The tomb was a simple shaft that led to three rooms. When you get to the end of the shaft, there was a bricked-up sealed door. It was sealed by the officials that managed and guarded the funerary complex. And then the first room was a sort of antechamber, and it held a variety of things that the king would use in his journey and in, in the afterlife. And the second room was the king's burial chamber. This was behind another door that was bricked up and sealed. And then off of the king's burial chamber was a small room chock full of stuff known as the treasury. So what about those break-ins, those robberies? The tomb of Tutankhamun was robbed twice. The tomb of Tutankhamun was robbed twice before some lucky breaks preserved it for Howard Carter to find. The first set of thieves broke in shortly after the after the funeral. And what they were looking for was stuff that, that, that was easy to sell or use. They went after the fine linens, the oils that were buried with the king. In one discarded container of an oily cream, like a jar, there is a fingerprint from the thief who scooped out a handful of the stuff. And it may seem strange to us that these thieves would leave the wonderful golden items that we see displayed today. But you have to put yourself in their sandals. They took the stuff they could sell or use. They didn't want to be lugging around a giant gold funerary mask. Didn't want to be lugging that around town trying to sell it. So after this first break-in, the funerary complex managers or guards or priests, whoever they were, they fixed the holes in the door, they resealed it, and then they filled the entry shaft with rubble. There's a lot of rubble in the Valley of the Kings because these tombs are chipped into the rock and all those chips have to go somewhere. Now, this filling of the shaft with rubble did not keep out a second robbery. 
The second robbers broke in also fairly soon after the burial, maybe months, maybe years, but they seemed to know the tomb layout and know where they were going and knew what they were after. And what they were after, after they tunneled through the rubble, broke into the tomb, cut into the treasury, they were after metal and jewelry. And when you see pictures of Tut's tomb and pictures of the treasury, it's just this jumble of items thrown against a wall. This was that second set of thieves tossing stuff out of the way to get to the portable metal and jewelry. And it's estimated that they took 60% of Tut's jewelry. And even after two sets of robbers went through the tomb, we were left with an amazing assortment of items and the intact burial shrine of the king. So why didn't subsequent robbers come back for these bulkier items? The golden coffin, the magnificent funerary mask? Well, that's where we get lucky. It seems that sometime after the second robbery, there was a flash flood or a landslide that covered up the entrance to Tut's tomb. Then future tomb builders dumped even more rubble on top of that. So Tut's tomb was covered up and hidden for Howard Carter to find 3,000 years later. Tut is so well known because we found his tomb relatively intact. And the discovery of the tomb caused a big wave of interest in England and the Western world and brought Egyptology to the forefront. And it was helped along by the sensational press of the day. So Carter and Lord Carnarvon, they sold exclusive rights to only one London newspaper. So the other newspapers that of, of that time who couldn't get any of the official stuff just started making stuff up, you know, like newspapers do, like that story about the curse on the tomb. And so this made it very sensational. There are some other things about Tut you might think you know, but are no longer considered true or our opinions are changing over time as we learn more. For instance, at one point there was this theory that Tut was murdered by a blow to the back of his head. And this was based on some early x-rays that showed some chunks of bone in the back of the head cavity and an, and also an offhand comment by an early archaeologist. And it's now believed that this is a red herring. Those splinters of bone in the brain cavity were probably an artifact of the embalming process. And Tut's mummy is in pretty bad shape. It's not only 3,500 years old, but it took a beating when they removed it from the coffin. When the original priests put the king's mummy in the coffin, they poured expensive oils over it, and these oils pooled in the bottom of the coffin and then solidified over time. So Howard Carter basically had to pry and chisel the mummy out, and it caused quite a bit of damage. I don't think we'd do that today, hopefully. There are some things we do know from the mummy. We know Tut had a pronounced overbite and a cleft palate. Yeah. And we know he had a club foot and may have had difficulty walking. Many canes were found in the tomb, and some had been heavily used. And we may know a cause of death. It seems one of the king's legs was broken and had not healed. So our King Tut may have died from a broken leg that got infected. And we know that the young king liked to hunt in his chariots, and there were several chariots in the tomb. Scholars propose that, hey, maybe, maybe he had a chariot accident, broke his leg, then he died. 
So like I said, we're learning more every year as the science progresses. Some of the other fun things that were found in the tomb, one of which was a pair of sandals with caricatures of the king's enemies on the bottom so he could walk on his enemies as he walked around. They found two silver trumpets that were actually played as a demonstration on the BBC in 1939, and you can find that recording on YouTube. Finally, there was this cool knife that when they tested it, they discovered it was actually made from an iron meteorite. Yeah. So King Tutankhamun, a boy king, the last of his line, left this world on his journey to the West 3,500 years ago. He taught us so much about his culture and his times. And the thing I always take away from these ancient stories is, even with all our cultural differences, how much like us they were. They lived, they strived, they loved, they died. They had physical ailments and challenges. And they believed in things bigger than themselves, in a higher calling, in an afterlife. And his body, King Tut, is still in his tomb in the Valley of the Kings. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Okay, my friends, we have journeyed to the west, to the wisdom of the old gods, through to the end of episode 4-469 of the Run Run Live podcast. Anubis, the jackal-headed god of the underworld, awaits. I came through my turkey trot on Thanksgiving a couple of weeks ago, came through unscathed. I ran the whole 5K, the knee was fine, did really well. I'm still doing my PT exercises when I can. Like I said, I need to figure out a plan to get <laughs> a little more volume into my life. This weekend is the Mill Cities Relay. It's a five-leg relay race at the end of the fall season that all the local running clubs participate in. And my local club, the Squanacook River Runners, they've been doing it for decades. I think I ran my first one in 1995. And I've got a great over-50 team of my running buddies, and we're going to have a blast. I gave myself the short leg, 2.5 miles, and I will do my best to complete it without hurting myself. So, yeah, I traveled this week. Did I mention that? <laughs> I was actually pretty nervous about it, right? Not because of the virus, more because I haven't done it in so long. You know, would I have lost the habit, the ability to travel? And no. It wasn't. It was still there. It was like old times. Fell right back into my routines. And I had this meeting in Dallas, big on-site meeting. All the client executives and our executives were there. They have a new C-level executive, and this was a bit of a coup by our team to get their executive team to visit us. And I've been working with this customer for two years and in that time, we've had a series of challenging projects, and it's been a battle. And it's not my role or responsibility to deliver the work or support it, but at the end of the day, I end up owning whatever, because whatever they do or we do, I own the relationship, so I end up owning it. I end up in that conversation. And for this meeting, besides all the high-level strategy stuff, they asked for a couple of things that were terrifying. <laughs> Things like, update us on the project status. What are we going to do about this underperforming partner that you recommended? What is your corrective action plan, right? Because I had no answers. I would just have to go in, tap dance, take a beating, 
you put me in a bad spot. I'm being held accountable for the execution of the client's team and our team, all of which are totally out of my control. So what to do? Just go in, say sorry, take the lumps. But then (laughs) I was reading a book that one of my workmates actually recommended to me called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. And as always happens, it was the message that I needed to hear at exactly the right time. The universe provides. I just knew they were going to take this opportunity to tear me a new orifice in front of their new boss, in front of my peers, in front of my bosses. But reading about extreme ownership, I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stand up there and say, these are the things that we've done to get better, but that's not good enough. We've got to do better. We as a team have to work together for our mutual mission success. You've got great, hardworking, caring people. We've got great, hardworking, caring people, and we're still not succeeding. So that tells me we either have a process problem or a leadership problem, and I'm going to commit. I'm going to take ownership right here, right now, to work with your team to figure it out and get better. And I wrote this all out, right? Had a great speech. The details of everything we accomplished together. The reasons behind the failures. And man, I was prepared. My teammates, they were antsy. I mean, you look at the agenda, the rest of the agenda, it's great. But there's this dark spot. (laughs) My part of the agenda where the four-hour meeting was bound to come off track. So what do you think happened? I should just leave the story there and have you send in postcards. Do they still do postcards? Is that a thing? So the meeting, of course, ran long with all these great conversations between our teams, our executives, our experts. And when when we got to the part of my agenda, everybody was pretty much exhausted and ready for dinner. It was late. So, you know, I put my slides up. And before I could say anything, That customer leader, the one who had been kicking me for over two years, stood up and began presenting for me. They explained to the new boss all the challenges and how we were going to address them and how we obviously had a process problem and how we should address it and how they'd been working with this troublesome partner. And so what did I do? Well, I shut the hell up and watched. I watched the stuff I've been worried about evaporate without me having to say a word. And did it matter that I didn't get to give my powerful SEAL team-inspired speech? Not at all. Was it a waste of my time to prepare? No, not at all. The mission was accomplished. And you do the best you can, and the universe will take care of itself. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought... That he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry